0: Scripture reading from this, for this morning is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 9. If you want to follow along in your Red Pew Bibles, it's on page 733. Page 733. The context of this passage Jesus is, uh, has just sent out his 12 disciples to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And then uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 7, it says this Now Herod the tetrarch heard about all that was going on. And he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. And then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida, But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. He replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to the, his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everybody sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples, and set to set before the people. They all, Ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? He said. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. This is God's word.
1: Let's take a brief moment together invite you to close your eyes this this is the we call it the word of god these ancient texts are incredibly valuable uh, just on that merit alone as ancient texts but we come this morning we gather together this morning because we believe that they're more than that so let's just take a moment again to approach the living god and say god would you speak through these words for us this morning Father, would you use this passage of Scripture to speak something fresh? We come in faith, whether little or lots. We come in faith because you called us. None of us are here this morning by accident. And so we believe that you have a word for us this morning. And we open our hearts to you. We want to listen with ears to hear. Amen. Uh, a cool breeze was carrying through this gentle smell of hibiscus as we were sitting, waiting for our food to arrive, uh, dining in the heart of Antigua, Guatemala, uh, al fresco. Do you know what al fresco means? It's like outdoors in this beautiful courtyard. And sitting to my right was my brother. We had just finished this long week of, of ministry. We were exhausted, and we were sipping on this. Berry. Uh, have you ever had berry and basil smoothie? Basil in a berry smoothie is quite fantastic. I highly recommend it. Fresh basil and basil this berry smoothie. We're sipping this. The food, we're waiting for the food to arrive. You can smell it's coming. Across the table from me are, are the leaders of the trip. And to the, my left is my good buddy Josh, who I helped lead to Christ and baptized. And here he is in Guatemala with me. And we're on this missions trip. And we're tired, but we just love this. Finally, the food arrives. And, and amidst you know our our lip smacking nonverbal uh, expressions of how amazing this meal was. I had one of those moments. Have you ever had one of those moments where you're surrounded by friends, family, you're eating an incredible meal together, and you have this moment where like kind of time slows down, or even feels like it stops. And you have this overwhelming sense of gratitude for your surroundings, what's around you, your friends, your family, whatever it may be. This amazing food, and I often have those moments around the table. That's just real for me. I love food. I don't know if I don't know what it constitutes to be a foodie, but uh, I kind of think I'm sort of one. Like I, there's a show on Netflix called Chef's Table, and has anybody seen Chef's Table? If if you do, you know what I'm talking about. I've had moments of emotion watching that show. Uh, like, it's not because of the story is that unique. It's the artistry coming together. It's just, it's, it's an amazing, I, I recommend it actually. Uh, we call those moments moments of transcendence sometimes. I've heard people who aren't people of faith at all use that word. It's like you're lifted out of the ordinary. Your mind is open to something greater, this greater reality. You have this moment of transcendence. And in that moment, uh, an experience beyond the normal or the physical realm, we have a sense of divine pleasure. We get a little taste of heaven. And it was in that moment that I had an even greater epiphany, if you can believe it, And I realized this is not a moment of transcendence. This is a moment of imminence. What we often call transcendence of us being lifted out of this place to a higher plane where we're experiencing God somehow, is actually God coming near to us in the everyday stuff of life. We were created for that. We were created for laughter. We were created for, for the real things that were created like for food and friends and family. And God said that those things were good. We were created for those things. We weren't created to be lifted out of the ordinary. We were created to experience God in the smack dab in the middle of the ordinary. And so I've started calling these moments not moments of transcendence, but moments of imminence. God is permanently, here's what imminence means. God is permanently pervading and sustaining the universe and all that's within it. And he's here with us. He's, he is transcendent. He is above. He is beyond. And at the very same time, he's present. He's with us. And so I often have these moments of heightened awareness, even watching, watching the chef's table and the artistry that comes together there as tears are streaming down my face. And I'm usually eating a late night snack while I'm watching food television. Uh... I sometimes have these moments that God is present. God wants us to experience his divine presence and who he really is. And some of the most profound moments of that we see are around a table in the Bible. Jesus came eating and drinking. Some of his most profound teaching moments came around a table or through food or through food imagery that he's using. And so that's why... These last few weeks and for the next few weeks, we're taking a close look in the gospel of Luke at the meals uh, of Jesus. As we read the gospel, we find people just like you and i simple, everyday people who are hungering for more of the divine. Who are thirsting for more of God. Who, and who try to fill this emptiness with things that are created things that either man makes or God makes. We try to fill the emptiness in our own soul with those things. And just like the people in this story this morning, they're hungry. Yeah, they're hungry. They're really hungry for food, but they're hungry for more than that. You don't follow Jesus around wilderness without having plans for dinner if you're not hungry for something greater than just bread and fish. They're hungering for, for more. And so there's great hope in this story for those who are needy, who recognize their need. There's great hope for people who are needy and recognize that need. So two questions I want to ask. Uh, I want to introduce, this is some way that you can take this home with you, this style of studying the Bible. So this morning, it's not particularly what we might call an expository sermon. I'm introducing a Bible study to you that as you're reading through a story, one of the narratives, you can ask yourself, who are we in this story? Who can I identify? What characters do I identify with in this story? So that's the first question. Who are we in the story? And the second question, who is Jesus in this story? So firstly, who are we in this story? There's really three characters to identify. And so I want to take a look at each one and how, how we might identify with them. The first one is probably one of the, the most difficult to identify. Herod the Tetrarch, option A. Herod the Tetrarch, the son of Herod the Great. Tetra tetrarch, tetra, means four. Herod the Great split up his kingdom for his four sons. So there's four regions that each son then oversaw. And this is the one who oversaw Galilee, where Jesus spent a good majority of his time. Verse 7 that says that Herod was perplexed. Herod was bothered by this guy Jesus. On the one hand, he wanted to kill him. He wanted to get rid of him. He already killed John the Baptist. On the other hand, he was very interested in Jesus. He wanted to find out who this guy really was. He's perplexed. He's confused. He's sometimes hostile, he's sometimes interested. Verse 9 says that Herod keeps trying to see him. The NIV says that he went he tried to see him. But the verb there is actually continual. Like he kept trying to find a way that he could see Jesus over the course of this time. He was interested. Most scholars also comment about how he was probably guilt-ridden about offing Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. He probably was carrying this sense of weird guilt because he knew that people liked John. He knew that people thought that John was actually a prophet of God. And so he carried this guilt with him too. He knew he was highly respected. This, of course, is the guy that we don't have a lot in common with. It's not the character that we think we identify with, but I want to take a closer look. How was Herod needy? See, Herod was the character in the story that was needy but didn't recognize his own need. Herod had a guilt complex. He heard some people say, what if this is John the Baptist? Come back to life. He's like, that is bad news. I just killed that guy. And so he's doing what Pharisees did with Jesus too. He's saying, well, if that's John the Baptist... I got to get rid of this guilt complex. The only way I can do that is take my guilt into my own hands and kill him again. I'm going to off him again. That's, I'm sure. So he puts a hit out on him. Jesus later, we find out later in the same gospel that Pharisees warn him, stay away from him. He's try, like Herod is going to try and kill you. And Jesus isn't even phased by that. Jesus, uh, so you know what chirping is? I, I play hockey and Sometimes in sports, especially for you basketball players, chirping is, is when you, you say some nasty things about the other player, and you're trying to get in their head so that they get off their game. Well, one time I heard this, this uh, and sometimes they use um, very colorful uh, foul language too, that's. Part and parcel of it so watching this hockey game sometimes they mic up nhl players and you can hear what they're saying to each other so you're hearing their them chirp each other and they're they're calling each other names and and the best one i ever heard was this guy is skating by this older veteran player and the older veteran player doesn't even bother he just barely looks at him and he says you're irrelevant you're you're irrelevant in this game i was like that's the best chirp i've ever heard you don't have to swear. You just t- like you just took him completely out of the game and that's kind of what Jesus is saying about Herod. He's like he says, "Go tell that fox." I don't care. Yeah, I'm going to continue to do what I'm doing for the next 2 days and then I'm I'm going to be raised to life after that. So, so I don't care what Her- Herod says. He's a fox and in that in that time, that Fox was actually derogatory. In English, we think Fox is kind of like, oh, he's cunning, he's smart, he's wise. In that culture, in the Aramaic culture, Fox was kind of like calling him a scaredy cat. He's like, he's, he hides in his hole. He hasn't even come out to find me. Like, he's up there hiding in his palace. He, he's a scaredy cat. Go tell that scaredy cat, I don't want anything to do with him. He's saying, you're irrelevant to him. And yet, here's this guy who's sitting on the throne thinks that the world revolves around him. And Jesus is saying, you're irrelevant. You haven't even come out to bother to to come out to see me. Herod wanted control. He was a leader in this district, but he wanted control over his personal life too. He wanted to control his own destiny. By killing John the Baptist, he he was saying, John the Baptist was was saying, your marriage is illegitimate. He He kept calling Herod out on his lifestyle. And Herod just killed him, had him killed. Because he didn't want somebody to tell him how to live. He wanted to be in charge of his own destiny. He wanted to be the one who was on the throne. He didn't want anybody else to get in the way of his decision making. Anybody else calling him out on his life choices. And so, Herod, strangely enough, in all of this, though, he had intentions, we find in this passage. He had intentions to find out more about Jesus. Jesus but he didn't carry them through until we see again later in chapter 23 that Pilate sends jesus during his trial back to herod and that's this herod and so in front of him finally he gets his chance he gets his chance to see jesus in the flesh face to face and what does he ask of him he asks him to perform a trick like a circus trick for him basically and jesus is silent and he doesn't do anything he doesn't say anything he says i'm not going to fit what you want me to be And Herod gets upset and when he doesn't do what he wants him to do, when when he finds out Jesus is not who he wants Jesus to be, he has him beaten and mocked. He mocks him to his face and beats him and sends him away and rejects who Jesus is. He rejects him altogether. Of course, this character like Herod is universe away from who we are, but are there things in there that we need to grapple with about our own character? How many of us How many of us carry guilt from our past and we try to deal with our own guilt? We try to be the ones who are in charge of getting rid of our guilt and shame, like Herod. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and I say that and it triggers a memory for you and you've been carrying that guilt your whole life and, and you've been trying to cover that guilt up. You've been trying to cover it up with things that we create. Try to cover it up with food (laughs) try to cover it up with drink you try to cover it up with shopping we try to cover it up with entertainment some of us try to cover it up with religion and so we put up on a mask particularly on sundays because inside we're so guilt-ridden we're so shameful of the things of the past but if we put on a mask and nobody sees who we are then we're okay and that's what herod is doing here he's trying to take care of his own guilt by killing jesus And there's so much irony in that, taking care of his own guilt by killing Jesus, that if he just put his faith in Jesus through his death and resurrection, he would be free of his guilt forever. He's killing the one who could actually take his guilt and shame away. Like Herod, some of us might be fascinated by Jesus at one point or another and have good intentions to learn about him for ourselves, but we've never gotten around to it. We, we want to know. We, we think we want to know. We have some ideas. Maybe people have told us about who Jesus is and what they think Jesus is. But we've never taken time to find out personally for ourselves. We've never taken time to go and find out who is this Jesus to answer that question for ourselves. Herod never got around to it. And then he never found out. And then later in chapter 23... We find that Herod is face-to-face with Jesus. And how many of us are like that? We want Jesus to to do what we want him to do. We want Jesus to be like who we want Jesus to be for us. But as soon as we feel like he's encroaching on, on speaking into our lives, as soon as we feel like the Bible is telling us how to live, as soon as we feel like Jesus might critique the choices that we've made, then we don't want anything to do with that. So who are we in this story? You see, when we come to Jesus, and if we can just suspend our own pride for a moment and recognize our neediness, Jesus will accept us. I truly believe that if Herod had come to Jesus, just like Nicodemus, one of the religious leaders, even though Nicodemus came in the, in the dark of night, if Herod had come to Jesus with a pure heart and said, you know what, I do have a need, I know that Jesus would accept him just like he did Nicodemus. He would have had a conversation with him. He would have received him. And so option A for us, who are we in the story? Option A is Herod. But even for folks like Herod, there's hope if we can just humble ourselves long enough to see our own need. So option A is Herod. Option B is the crowd. The crowd in our story had been following Jesus for, for some time. They were really interested in what Jesus had to say. They were soaking it up. They were, they were a mixed crowd. Many of them were blue-collar people. Some of them were outcasts of society. Some of them were lame and crippled, and because of that, they weren't part of society. They were on the edges of society. Some of them were well-educated. We see Pharisees sometimes. Some of them were religious leaders, and they hung out, and they kind of followed the crowd around. So it was a real mix uh, of, of crowd. Many of them weren't sure who he was. They didn't really know who this guy was, but they loved his teaching. The difference between the crowd and Herod is not that they knew who Jesus was. Both of them, we find out in this passage on the book ends, Herod asks, who is this guy? Is he John the Baptist? Is he Elijah? Is he prophet of old? And then at the end, Jesus says the crowd is asking the same thing. They don't know who Jesus is. The difference between the crowd and Herod is that the crowd is ready to recognize their own need. They know what they need. How are they needy? How is the crowd needy? Well, they know they need good teaching. They they recognize their need to learn. They recognize their need for God. They recognize their need for healing. And how does Jesus respond to this? This This is one of the most beautiful moments, I think, actually, in this passage, is that the NIV says he welcomed them. And the word there in the Greek means that he warmly received them. They knew their need. They came to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He warmly receives them. He welcomes them. And he meets their needs. He teaches them about the kingdom of God. And he heals those that need healing. And then in the late afternoon, the crowd needed something really practical. And as Jesus met them right where they were at. And he feeds them. He not only meets their spiritual needs. But he meets their physical needs too. And so in providing this meal, in providing this moment, these people have not a transcendent moment, but they have an imminent moment. We find out that they start to realize that God is among them in the person of Jesus around a meal. He provides a meal. Some of us recognize our need and are super interested in Jesus. And even though we're not exactly sure who he is, we've been following him for a while. We we know our needs. We want to learn more about God. We're actually hungry and thirsty for that. We're not quite sure who he is, but we've kept, we've caught some divine glimpses along the way. Maybe some of us are here and we like the crowd. We know that we need healing. Some of us are waiting and we're hoping and we're longing for physical healing or mental healing, psychological healing. Some of us are hoping for some sort of healing yet in life. And so we're here this morning because we believe Jesus might have the cure. He might have the answer. And you know what's beautiful about that? If you're like the crowd here this morning, you need to know that Jesus stops for you. Jesus was going somewhere else with his disciples and and, and he arrives there and hears this crowd and Jesus stops for them. If you're like the crowd this morning, Jesus stops for you. He makes time for you. He warmly receives you. It doesn't matter if you're not quite sure who he is yet. If you come to him knowing, recognizing your need, he welcomes you warmly. And so option A is Herod, but even for hope, people like Herod, there's hope. If we can just recognize our need. And option B is the crowd. There's hope for you if you know your need, because Jesus loves to welcome people like that. Option C is the disciples. This is the third group we see in this text. In our story this morning, the disciples have gotten back from being sent out on mission together. They're, they're tired, they're exhausted. Jesus says, uh, don't bring a staff, don't bring a bag, don't bring money, don't bring a shirt with you. And he's setting them up. He sends them out to set them up to say, you know what, you're going to find hospitality wherever you go. I want you to learn not only to give it, I want you to learn how to receive it. It's interesting. I also want you to know that I'm going to take care of you wherever you go. And so when... when uh, When you need something, I'm going to provide it for you. And sometimes I'm going to provide it through people. That's how sometimes God provides for others. He provides it through his people. And so they were taught to to go around on on this mission with bringing nothing but learning to share hospitality. I can picture them coming back from this mission. They're excited. They've seen some amazing things. They've seen God at work. Like Jesus gave them the authority to cast out demons, to heal, to tell the good news of Jesus. They would have seen some amazing things. And they come back, they're excited, but they're exhausted. And they just can't wait to be together with Jesus because Jesus has told them, and they know this, Jesus builds in time with them. He actually, he's good at that. He builds in time of rest and recuperation so they're ready for that. They know that's coming. And so they, they, they come back, they're ready to recoup, and they arrive to where they're going and the crowd is waiting for them. Can you imagine you're heading up to the cottage and all of a sudden you find 5,000 people waiting there for you? The introverts in the crowd are like, you can feel that. You're you're like, this is the worst thing that could ever happen. I'm just ready to get away and there's somebody waiting for me. There's a crowd now waiting here. We have to do something about it. And you know what Jesus does? Even Even if you can feel their pain and you want to cry for them, Jesus welcomes the crowd warmly. Can you imagine being a disciple? You're ready to be done. You just want to hang out with Jesus. A crowd of 5,000 people show up at your cottage, and Jesus welcomes them. And you're like, you've got to be kidding me. And the disciples dig deep, though, and they join him in the ministry. And finally, after a long, warm, hot day in the sun... They're like, Jesus, can you send the crowd away? (laughs) Like, send the crowd away. Like, I mean, because we're in the wilderness and they have nothing to eat. Like, for their sake, send them away so that they can get lodging and food. And we're exhausted. And Jesus says, you get something. You get something for them to eat. You feed them. You know the flushed emoji where the eyes are wide and the cheeks are red? Have you seen the flushed emoji? That's what their face looked like in that moment. You gotta be kidding me. Uh, like, we're. Ex- uh, what? Okay, like, this is Jesus, we're following you, now what? When we were first married, Christina was second in command of a kitchen at a camp, a Mennonite camp, and it was like, because they were Mennonite, they actually, it was almost miraculous. They could make something out of nothing. It, it was. It was really quite incredible, and, and you who are Mennonites, you know that's kind of the culinary tradition. You can make something out of nothing. You can make something t- taste good out of cabbage. Like, I don't, how do you do that? Cabbage rolls taste good, I don't know. Uh, it's amazing. We can make things taste good out of very little, and you knew the next day the soup that you were eating was leftovers the night before, but everybody gobbled it up like crazy, right? Like... That was how it was. But these guys are disciples. They have nothing. Like, Christina's catering to, to maybe 300 people. The disciples just get back. They're exhausted. And Jesus is like, hey, can you cater to this crowd of 5,000? They're like, okay, Jesus, I'm not sure how to do that. Uh, we, we have five loaves and, and two fishes. It's all we could come up with. Uh, we don't have enough grocery money. Like, we could go to town. There's no way we can buy groceries for all these people. We do have money. There's no way it's enough. And he looks them in the eye. If you just imagine being a disciple, you're like, I have no idea what to do here. And he looks them in the eye and he says, you just take the first step. Get them seated in groups of 50. And I'll do the rest. You gotta trust me. Will you trust me on this? I'm like, okay. And then what we see is, is a miraculous... That Jesus... This is what I like to call these things. Jesus does a naked miracle. There's no other way to describe this than a miracle. There's some people who say, secular scholars, Christian scholars, who like to explain this miracle away. They like to say that, you know what, when the little boy, although that story's not in Luke, the little boy comes with his loaves and fish, all the crowd feels a little guilty and they're like, ooh, You know what? We actually did bring some lunch too. So here, let's pass that out. and We should probably share with each other. This is literally what scholars say. They try to explain this way. This miracle is the only miracle other than the resurrection that is found in all four Gospels. The Gospel writers want us to know that this is a very important moment. And this is a miracle. They want us to know that this is a miracle. They don't explain it away. We can't explain this away. And here they are. They feed them, and not only that, they have 12 baskets of food left over, one for each disciple. Not only do I want you to provide, and I'm going to help you do the miracle to provide for these people, you're going to come away with enough for yourself, and probably more than enough for yourself. I want you to eat too. I'll give you what you need and more, I'll give you so much you'll have overflowing. And so it's in this meal where they help Jesus serve and show hospitality where they don't just have a transcendent moment, they have an imminent moment. God is present. God shows up in a powerful way around the table. Time slows down. They're like, this is unbelievable. We're not told about... The scientists in this room want to know, how is Jesus breaking bread and it just keeps... Right? Like, how does it just keep being a bread? into feeding five thousand. I don't know. The, the, all four Gospels don't really tell us. There's not like somebody there... If I was there, I would want to stare and watch Jesus' hands the whole time. <laughs> but we don't know. We don't know. What we do know is they want us to know that this is a significant moment and this is a miracle. So how were the disciples needy? Well, obviously, they were... Tired. And we see just after this section, it says Jesus did then take them away for a quiet spot. He knew he knew their need. They just needed to pony up for a short time here for these 5,000. And he said, after that, we'll have our break. So he even provided for them in their neediness of rest. But they also were in this moment where like, you feed them. There's no way that we... Jesus throws them in the deep end and they're in way over their head. And he says, trust me. They're needy, and Jesus meets their need. Some of us are like the disciples. We hear the great commission to be on mission all the time. We've been telling you, you're missionaries right here in Niagara. You have the gospel. Go share it. Jesus has called each one of you, each one of you to share the gospel, to make disciples, to baptize people, and to teach them about Jesus. And we feel, I do, I feel in over my head. I don't know how to do that. And in this story, Jesus says, I'm going to give you what you need. Just take the first step. Just take the first step. And I'm going to meet you in that place. I'm going to give you what you need, and I'm going to give it to overflowing. Just take that first step of obedience. And I can do a miracle. I sometimes wonder, in a church where we finish in the black a lot every year. Financially, we're pretty set. We don't have an issue. And we do a capital campaign and we come up short. Like, we can't do this. We can't, we can't, finally, Jesus throws us in the deep end. We're in over our head and we don't know what to do. We can't get there. And yet we have this vision that God's given us to reach Our neighbors, to provide a hospitable space for people, not a weird space where guests walk in the front of a church and are like, ooh, this is weird. Where do I sit? We want a space that's welcome and warm and they can come in the back and grab a coffee and, and feel welcomed in. And God says, I can do a miracle. You didn't get it there. I know, but you took the first step. I'll meet you. I'll meet you in that place. I can do a miracle. If you're like a disciple, you know Jesus is the Messiah, your Lord, your Savior. This story is telling us when we step out in faith, when we serve him, when we step out in obedience, Jesus is going to meet our needs. Sometimes practically, like when Jesus sent them out, don't take bread, don't take a staff, don't take, you know what, people, the people of God, you'll be hosted. They'll meet your needs. Sometimes it's practical that way. It's the people of God. It's the people around us that meet our needs. But sometimes it's miraculous. We need to know that God will meet our needs miraculously in a way that we never imagined. And so who are we in this story? Are we Herod? If we could just for a moment recognize our need, but we don't, are we like Herod? Are we like the crowd who does recognize their need? And Jesus is there for a warm welcome and he wants to welcome you in, even though you're not quite sure who Jesus really is. You need to know that you're welcomed by him. Are we like the disciples? We know we're on mission and we feel way in over our heads. But Jesus says, I'm going to meet your need there. Just take the first step. So firstly, who are we in the story? I want you to consider that even this coming week. Who am I in this story? What do I need to grapple with? What are the principles from this story that I need to grapple with? But secondly, way more important. Because the story is not about us. Who's Jesus? Who is Jesus in this story? Here in this meal hosted by Jesus, we get a glimpse of who he really is. It's not a transcendent moment. It's an imminent moment. God has come near. Jesus loves to use imagery of food around a table speak to a greater reality of truth and what the kingdom of God is like. Herod asks it, and Jesus echoes it. Who is this Jesus? Is he John the Baptist who's come back from dead? Is, is he Elijah? Is he Moses? Who is this guy? Why are they asking those questions about these dead guys? Well, we need to understand in that culture, they were expecting a prophet like Elijah to be raised up before the coming of the Messiah. They were waiting for a king a savior king who would come rescue them from their oppression, from being slaves. There's also a prophecy that Moses gives that he says in Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst of your brethren and him you shall hear. He's talking about the Messiah. But they had this Thought Moses is going to show up before the Messiah. There's going to be a great prophet that shows up, and so they're like, "Is this the great prophet?" And Jesus says, "Actually, the miracle that Elisha did—he did this amazing. Elisha did this amazing miracle where this this widow and him were fed perpetually from flour and oil and had bread throughout the whole famine, miraculously. It's amazing. Elisha, the better Elijah, his protégé." has this moment where he's supposed to feed this massive amount of troops with 20 loaves of bread and, and the servant's like, there's no way. There's no way that these guys are going to eat that. And Elisha says, no, put it out there. God said that there's going to be more and there's going to be an overflowing amount of food if they eat it. Elisha does that miracle. God does that miracle through Elisha. And Jesus does this miracle and he says, I'm greater than those guys. This miracle is greater than those guys. And he, and he, and he. He references Moses here. Here's these 5,000 Israelites in the wilderness, slaves to sin, and he's the one who provides the manna. He's saying, I'm God. Moses didn't just lead them out of, and God provided the manna. Jesus now in this moment is providing the manna for these guys. Saying, I'm God. And he's pointing to this beautiful story that he's, He's the one who's going to be leading them out of slavery to sin. Not Egypt, but sin. He's the one who's going to free them. It's this incredible imagery around the meal. We we not only know that, but there's this beautiful, when he's breaking the bread and the fish. It's almost the same language that we see when he institutes the Last Supper. He's breaking the bread. He looks up to heaven. He blesses it. He breaks it. distributes it it's a sign of this new covenant that he will make around a table again in the presence of food and friends and family god shows up around the table and of course all of that all of that is a sign of hope for those who know their need this morning do you know your need because the ultimate sign is a sign for those who know their need, and it's a sign of the greatest feast that is yet to come. It's it's a wedding feast that Jesus is gonna throw. He's the bridegroom, and it's a wedding feast, and we're invited to it if we put our faith in him, and we'll finally know who God is in the fullness of who he is. And so I want to ask you a couple questions. Can you reach your neighborhood with the gospel? Can you muster up enough courage to share Jesus with the people that you know and you love? Can Cornerstone plant a new church? Can we feed 5,000 with five loaves? Nope, nope, nope. Nope to all of those. Except as we step forward in faithful obedience, we need to know that Jesus through this story is saying, I will meet you in that place. And I'm going to provide what you need when you need it. Are we willing to step out in faith saying, Lord, we're needy. We're in way over our head. It's got to be you. Can't be us. So just a couple of responses, practical responses, I'm going to challenge you. This week, I want you to invite people to be around your table. People that you've been praying for. We had uh, names posted. I want you in the next week or two To invite them to be around your table and pray that they they wouldn't have a transcendent moment, that they would have an imminent moment, that they would experience the presence of God around the table with you. And secondly, I'm helping Diane Pagnuko. Peg Pagnuko is she here? How do you say her last name? Is it Pagnuko? Diane Pagnuko has this phenomenal idea. We're calling it "Gather at the Table." And in the next few weeks, we'll roll it out. More details will come. But you'll be able to sign up as a host or a guest. You can say, I want to host kids or not kids. You can say, I want to be a guest with my kids or not with my kids. And we're going to set up a weekend where you can sign up for a Friday dinner or a Saturday dinner. You get choice, lots of choice. We like choices. So we're going to give you lots of choices Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday lunch, or Sunday dinner. And you don't know who's going to show up to your house. And you don't know who's going to show up with you. And you're going to host a meal. And you're going to pray. 're going to pray that we're going to have an imminent moment together with friends and strangers around our table. So more to come about that, but I want to get that in your mind. So why don't we pray together? Lord, this miraculous story is amazing. For some of us, it's confounding. For some of us, it's really challenging. Lord, would you help us to see where our heart is at in all of this, in the characters here? Would you point out where our heart needs to recognize our need, our need of you? Thank you for the truth here, the good news, Jesus, that you are willing to stop, that you're willing to take time, that you are willing to to warmly receive those who recognize their need and come to you. And Jesus, as we step out in faith as a church, Cornerstone, Lord, you have given us the mission to glorify the Father by making disciples. Lord, would you meet us in that place? Would you do the miracle that we can't do? And so this morning, we just show up. We show up with our five loaves and our two fish. That's all we got. But we show up with what we have. We say, Lord, would you multiply that? Would you multiply what we can do so that the glory would go to Jesus? so that more and more people might know who he is, that he is the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. He's the one who can lead us into the promised land. And so we look forward to that day. God, we know that there's a great hope for each one of us, that one day we can join you face to face around the table and feast in eternity together. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, for his glory in his name. Amen.